You know something I've learned is that when I really want something, it is really hard to resist it. You ever experienced this? Like, have you ever gone on one of those just a little diet? Maybe a major diet or maybe a small diet. If you experienced any level of diet, uh, like a, a, earlier this year, I have a confession. Uh, I'm a bit of a Dr. Pepperaholic. Okay, like. I throw down on really any soda. Like I just, I love the sugar of it. And sometimes when I haven't had a soda for a while, I'm just like, I just want, maybe I'll just chew on sugar. Like I just, I, I know it's a problem and I go to meetings and all this stuff. But so early this year, I was like, I need, to, I need to stop drinking soda. So I actually stopped drinking soda for several weeks. I think it was like six or eight weeks. Went completely without soda. And it was, it was insane because I'd be places and I'd be like, I'll have a uh, water. And I'm a little bit of ashamed because now you know what I drink mostly? I drink like LaCroix, like that bubbly, it's a shame, I know. So don't tell my guy friends. I know it's not a manly drink, um, but I, you know, I'm down with it, whatever. In fact, I've recently been drinking just straight seltzer water. And I know that's even like, if, if Chris from two years ago would meet me today, I'd be like, I'm ashamed of you. What are you doing? But it's hard. When you really want something that's hard to resist, I gotta tell you, I'm down to like two sodas a week probably. And uh, I've noticed a huge difference in my life. And so maybe that's something that you could do. Uh, my daughter has a gluten allergy. And so all the time we're like throwing down. Gluten, by the way, is one of God's greatest creations. Just so you know. It comes in wheat products, okay? It's the stuff that makes bread stretchy and chewy. It is amazing. It's so good, but some people can't eat it. Their stomachs can't handle it, or they have different uh, types of allergies. And so this week in solidarity with my daughter, I was like, you know what, babe? I'm not going to have gluten for a little while. She's like, really, dad? You would do that for me? I'm like, yeah. And I made it like two and a half days. Yeah, I know, I know. It was pretty awesome. Uh, but then it was funny because at the end of like day three, I was almost at the end of day three. And she said, Dad, you know what? I think you should have a piece of bread as a reward. And I was like, I think I should. So he did. Um, so it makes me think about something that old Los Angeles Dodgers manager, Tommy Lasorda, he said once. He said, he, he went on a, um, the Slim Fast diet and he goes, I'm a strong man, but sometimes linguine is stronger. <laughs> you know, it's like when you want something really bad, it's really hard to resist it, and some things just pull us in. There's a gravity to it, and you know what? Our diets, for the most part, are just personal preference. Maybe there's some level where it's unhealthy when you have certain things, or maybe you know there's a self-control thing you need to work on. So I'm not talking about diets today, but what I what I do want to touch on today is something that I think plagues us all. It's something that pulls us in and hurts us. It's something called temptation, and temptation is everywhere. And it's not just through our, our foods that we eat. Uh, temptation is often stronger than we are, and we fall into sin that ultimately creates walls between us and God and the life that he wants us to live because he loves us. And so we're in week three of this series where we're going through the life of Joseph. Joseph's an amazing character in the Bible. If you missed the last two weeks, I totally encourage you to go check out our podcast and just see where he's been. Joseph becomes this amazing figure in his lifetime. He ends up being one of the most powerful men in the world. He saves thousands of people from a famine. It's an amazing story. But before he even does any of that, he has to overcome a roller coaster of a life. He has this crazy functional family. And where we last left him, his brothers had just faked his death and sold him into slavery. Like you thought your family was bad. Joseph, <laughs> Joseph had the worst brothers ever. And so that's kind of where we left him. And he'd been dropped off in Egypt. And that's where we're going to pick up this week. We're going to see Joseph come face to face though with something that we all face. It is our temptation to go away from the things that God wants us to do in our life and towards the things that are going to pull us away from him. Joseph was a God chaser. 
And in our church vocabulary, we have three goals. We say we wanna be God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. And we touch on those all throughout the year, all the time. But to be a God-chaser says, I wanna put God at the center of everything I do. All of my decisions, all of my choices, all of my lifestyle, everything. Joseph's life is exemplary in what it means to be a God chaser in the midst of crazy adversity and having to overcome all of those things. And this week we're going to see him face something that he didn't see coming. So we're going to be in the book of Genesis again today. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Open it up. Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. Uh, don't be ashamed to crack out your phone because I know you brought that. And look it up and uh, check out Genesis chapter uh, 39 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible today, by the way, we give away free Bibles every week. We want people to have Bibles. Uh, anybody can take a Bible off of that shelf right there by the door if you need a good readable version of the Bible. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 39, and we're really just going to pick the story up where we left it off last week. Um, just as things are looking safe and sound for Joseph, he's finally settled into a new home. He's become a servant in the house of a guy named Potiphar, who's a very influential man. He is the, the, uh, the, the commander of Pharaoh's like, palace guard, so he's, a, he's an official and he's in a good spot, and he had done so well as, an official, as a servant in his household that the official Potiphar had moved him up in the ranks and made him kind of like the head of the household. So it's a pretty big deal. Joseph's doing pretty well. And then out of nowhere, temptation strikes. Now here's the thing. This story dives right into the deep end, head first, like right into the concrete. And so that's actually where we're going to dive in because that's how the story goes. Um, so, so check it out. Here we go. Genesis 39, starting at verse 6. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. I love that sentence. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Wow. So I don't know where like this uh, cougar shows up and she's like, hey, I got an idea. And like maybe you've like worked on some cheesy pickup lines. Maybe you've used uh, a dating app. Like she skips all that. She's like, goes right for the kill. She, she, she takes what I like to call the direct approach. And she gives him this invitation. Now, there's a couple of things we learned. First, we learned that Joseph is handsome and well-built, which I've got to say has got to be the most flattering thing in the Bible about anybody. Like, ladies, if you want to make your man blush, sometimes just tell him in his ear, hey, I think you're handsome and well-built. <laughs> He'll blush. My wife did that this week to me. I wish she would have. That's an idea. Um, <clears throat> and uh, she sees him and she notices him and she gives him this invitation. Now, this would have been a really hard crossroads for Joseph. Okay, a couple of reasons. And let's just kind of just list off the reasons why this would have been a really hard thing to resist. Number one, it was her idea. She came to him. She gives him this invitation. No fault there. Number two, they're all alone. Who else would know if they had, you know, a, a relationship like that? Number three, it probably felt really good to his ego. Because if you think about it, she, she is the wife of a high official. Many speculate that she was probably very beautiful. It was common for people in these positions to have kind of a, uh, excuse the phrase, a trophy wife, you know, a beautiful woman. And so there's a good chance that she was very beautiful and attractive to him. He was young and unmarried. And so though she invites him into this adulterous relationship, he like, wouldn't be cheating on anybody, right? Technically, and this is a culture where that would have been okay. He might have felt like he deserved something like this. After all, God, I've been faithful to you, and what's happened to me? My brothers threw me in a pit, they faked my death, they sold me into slavery. I deserve something, something for a change. Like maybe this is Joseph's day. From a worldly perspective, any one of those reasons would have been plenty of reasons for Joseph to say, okay, <laughs> sounds like a plan. 
In fact, what's interesting is if he had said okay, odds are the next segment of his life would have been much different. I doubt she would have told anybody. It would have had to have been her secret. And if you know the story of Joseph ahead of time, if you don't, we'll learn it through the next couple of weeks. But he's going to go through some hard times because of the decision he's going to make. Here's what I found is that when we face temptation, when we face sin, we can think of a million reasons why it would be justifiable to do the thing that we shouldn't do. I've been guilty of this more times than I can count. It brings shame and guilt into my life because there's times that I've been like, hey, you know, I made, I made up a good reason why this is okay. Um, I actually spent about a year in, in counseling in, with a Christian counselor, just working through some personal things, some mental health things, and some personal sin and temptation things that, man, it was, it was just beautiful. By the way, if you've never spent time with a therapist, find a good uh, Jesus-following one and spend some time with them. It's really good for you. But I learned a lot from this guy, and one thing that I learned to him, from him about temptation is this. He says, when you feel yourself being tempted, there is one question that needs to go through your mind. And this is the question he put in my mind. This is this question. What lie am I believing right now? Because when we face temptation, we're gonna start to run through a list of reasons why this is just fine. It's just okay. There's no reason why I should say no to this. What lie am I believing right now? Because when it comes to spiritual warfare and trusting God with our life, one of the enemy's greatest tools is to make a lie look like a truth. And our society just exemplifies this in everything they do. There's a lot of different temptations you can face. Specifically this morning, we see Joseph facing sexual temptation, and I think it's okay just to talk about that because, man, we live in a world that is so sexually charged. Everywhere you look, whether it's through advertisement or just various forms of media and conversation, it's in everything that we do. And so let's just look at that specific temptation. What lie does the enemy disguise as a truth? Well, immorality is often disguised as pop culture. You know, everybody's doing this. It's cool. It's fine. It's immoral, but it's fine because it's what everybody's doing. Adultery is disguised as just fun and games. You got to keep things live, right? Things are good. Pornography is disguised as entertainment. Just something to do with my time. And this is the thing that, that I think rips us apart the most without us even realizing it, and that is that God's beautiful gift of marital intimacy is treated like a disposable commodity, Something that we can just use up and throw away and get another one. It's a lie disguised as a truth. So what lie am I believing right now? And, and I think that Joseph may have asked himself this question. I have found that there's a, a simple definition uh, for sex that God has. Very simple, very, very simple. And, and this is it. That God created sex for married people. I think that's a very simple, if, if you haven't had this conversation with your kids, that would be a good way to start. Okay, they're seeing it everywhere else in the world. Uh, when I talk about subjects like this, I often reach out to parents who have younger kids in the room, and so you know, give them a little heads up. But like, if you've got a teenager in this room this morning, I want to say it for you if you haven't yet. God created sex for married people. Okay, He didn't create it for people who are in love. He didn't create it for consenting adults. He didn't create it for people who are mature enough to handle it. He didn't create it so that you can take a test drive before you buy the car, or whatever like obscene analogy you want to use. He created it for married people because there's a spiritual union that happens. It's not just physical. It's souls touching. That's why in scripture it says the two become one flesh. It's a beautiful thing. And so that's just like a little side dish there to go with what we're talking about with temptation because this is what Joseph is facing. And it's so appealing. And it's something that our minds get turned towards. And Joseph could have made a lot of really well-rationalized you know, excuses for why this would be completely okay. It was her idea. No one would know. 
Everyone would say it was okay. But instead, this guy, he does the God-honoring thing here. Let's just keep reading. We're going to jump back into his story. Genesis chapter 39, uh, verse 8 now. It says, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am, which is funny to say to his wife, but my master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I think we can pick a lot of things out of what just happened with Joseph's conversation, and we're going to read the rest of the story in just a second, and learn so much about how we can manage temptation in our life. And this is the first thing we learn from him. We learn that, G- that Joseph thought about how giving into temptation would affect other people. How seldom we do this. Because sin is about me. It's about what, how, what I'm going to get out of this right now. But he says it. He wasn't thinking about himself. He, he gave her two really great reasons why this was a bad idea. Number one, he thinks about Potiphar. How about your husband? Let's talk about him for a second. You want to talk about Potiphar? Because I think that'd be bad if I... And he, he's kind of like, listen, this guy's been really good to me. I'm not going to disgrace him by doing this with you. That's not okay. And then in the second thing, he says, he's thinking about God. He says, listen, I'm not married to you. He's got some concept of what God wants from him. And he's like, this would dishonor God, so I'm not going to do it. What a great principle. When we're faced with temptation, what if we put ourselves on the back burner and start thinking about someone else? How is this gonna affect my spouse? How is it gonna affect my kids? How is it gonna affect my coworkers? How is it gonna affect the people who respect me or the people who count on me? Think about other people. And even more, if you wanna be a God chaser, which is the goal of digging into the life of Joseph, we've gotta really ask ourselves, what does God want from me? I'm gonna tell you, you might not know right off. You might not know, and that's okay. God knows that, but you know what you can do? You can discover, you can dig. There's some parts of us that just have this innate, like, "Ah, it just doesn't feel right. Maybe I should dive into that a little bit. Maybe you don't know and you've made the mistakes and whatever. Guess what? We're gonna talk about that in a minute. There's a lot of grace for that. God is good in understanding that we don't know everything and there is forgiveness. But thinking about others makes a big, big difference. Joseph refuses to be selfish. He says, I'm not gonna be disloyal to Potiphar. I'm not gonna disobey God. So he says, no. But she doesn't take no for an answer. She won't quit. So, so she does another thing. Let's just keep reading verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. It's, it's hard to say no to something once, twice. But day after day after day. And so we have this, I always picture Joseph as this stud of a strong moral guy. Like he's, got great, he's just got conviction. He's like, I'm just not gonna do this. I'm just so strong. But I think there's something else we learn about Joseph in this situation. I think he realized that it's not enough to be strong enough to resist temptation. You also have to be smart. I don't know if you caught that last little sentence. It says, Joseph refused to even be with her. So he's not just strong, He's also smart enough to know. He knows, listen, if I spend time, I'm going to eventually cave in, okay? And and, uh, I'm not going to be able to walk away from this. And as much as he can, he's a servant in the house. He can't just not come to work. He can't just disappear. But as much as he can, he stays away from her. But that only goes so far. Look what happens next, verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. (laughs) He tried to reason with her. He tried to avoid her. 
There was no time for that. So this time, this is the third thing we see from Joseph. He runs away from her. He's like, forget this, I gotta go. Because he knows like, if I don't run now, I'm never gonna be able to walk away. I gotta get out of it. And again, I don't think it was necessarily that he was just so strong that he was just like, I, I'm resisting. I think he was just like, I, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. Joseph runs. He doesn't even have time to pick up his coat. Um, he does the right thing. He honors God. This is where the story takes a twist, and it's not the twist that we want it to take. But I'm glad it takes this twist because it's actually more realistic. You would think that Joseph does the right thing. Potiphar walks in and goes, wow, you're such a noble man. Thank you for honoring my family. Bad wife, you know? Like, that's what you kind of want to happen because she's kind of putting him in this position. That's not what happens. He actually immediately gets punished. Keep reading. Verse 13 now. So, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, okay, she's flustered. She's embarrassed. She's disappointed, and she's angry. So what does she do? She calls her household servant. She says, look, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak behind and ran out of the house. And she kept the cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him the same story. Look, the Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak behind. And it goes on, and he says, look how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Potiphar did. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. <laughs> uh, I just want to point something out. Joseph has the worst look, luck when it comes to coats. <laughs> you remember what happened with his last coat? Yeah, so like this whole thing, like he's like, oh, no more coats for me. I'm just going to be no coat guy, <laughs> okay? Um, but it, he does the right thing. He does the noble thing. He does the godly thing. He's successful in repeated temptation, and his reward is losing his job and being thrown into jail. What do we learn from this? I seriously, like, I spent a lot of time on this paragraph. I'm like, what do we even learn from this? And I think this is the truth right here. This is the best I got right now, okay? Rewards for faithfulness are eternal, but they're not always immediate. In fact, sometimes we're still the victim of our circumstance. Joseph was not in charge of himself. I mean, he was a servant. It was his word, a servant, against her word, uh, uh, you know, essentially a nobility woman. He's never going to win that in a court of law. No one's going to believe him. Plus, he's the guy and she's the woman, and that's the reputation that a, a man would have in that culture, that he would just do something like that. You know, doing the right thing doesn't mean that you're always going to be treated the right way. If you've ever stood up for somebody that was being picked on or pushed around in front of your buddies, you maybe have learned this. It doesn't make you more popular to stand up for the underdog. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't mean you're going to be treated the right way. But rewards for our faithfulness will come, sometimes slowly, but always they will come. That's the promise that God gives us. And we're going to get into that just a little bit at the end of our talk here today. But here's the thing. God will reward us when we're faithful. Joseph's story continues, and he ends up in a bad situation. In fact, as I've told you before, his story is a roller coaster. It's up, and then it's down, and it's up, and it's down deeper, and it's up, and it's down even deeper, and he hasn't got to the bottom yet, okay? But somehow he's still faithful to God. For now, Joseph runs, and he dodges the bullet of temptation, and you know what we're going to call that? We're going to call that victory. 
We're gonna call that victory because I think in our own lives, sometimes it's just the day-to-day victory that we're fighting for. If I can get past these three hours, woo, I win today. And that's the victory we're gonna claim for Joseph because I will tell you, in the end, God does show up in a powerful way and his faithfulness is rewarded. Because the enemy wants nothing more than for us just to let our guard down and to believe his lies. And if he can win on that front, we might have a cushier life in this world, but we are not growing closer to the creator who loves us. And so we don't wanna give him the upper hand. We're studying the life of Joseph so that we can learn how to be a better God chaser. And his response to this temptation is exactly, I think, what will help us in our times of weakness. And so recently this, uh, this season, this, uh, since August, I've been an assistant coach for my son's Pop Warner football team. It's a whole lot of fun. And uh, we've done really well. I've been proud of our boys. But as the season has gone on and we've played uh, more and more teams, what happens if you follow sports is often you'll play the same team like twice or, or three times in a season. So I've really enjoyed watching the head coach as we prepared from week to week because we'll come in, uh, for example, yesterday we, call, we played a team called the Colts. But this whole past week, coach comes in and he's like, okay, we've played the Colts before. Let's talk about their strengths and their weaknesses. Let's talk about our strengths and our weaknesses. And he begins to formulate the whole practice last week about the game we have coming up on the weekend. Now the boys get distracted. They wanna talk about last week's game. They wanna talk about so-and-so's touchdown. They wanna talk about playoffs. Playoffs? You want to talk about playoffs? It's not about playoffs. It's not time for playoffs. It's time for this coming week. And so we have to bring the boys back along. We have to say, okay, listen, stop. Stop talking about those things. We're facing the Colts this week. What do we have ahead of us? And we begin to formulate a game plan specifically designed for the opponent that we know we're going to face. Why do I tell this story? I don't know how we missed this in our spiritual life, but let me tell you something. Very likely, we already know the opponents we're going to face But then when we show up face-to-face with them, we act completely surprised. Whoa, where did that come from? How did that happen? It's like, well, you've been here a hundred times. We should know by now. I'm speaking from my experience. I'm telling myself this. And so here's what I want to do. I want to, just for today, I want to formulate what we're going to call our game plan for facing the temptation that we know is going to come. Your temptation might be similar to Joseph's. It might be totally different. It might be something to do with money or something to do with your health or something to do with relationships. It might be something to do with your integrity. I don't know. But I think you can overlay this game plan and and there are five things, one, two, three, four, five, one on each finger. And there are things, if you're a note taker, uh, pull out one of those cards that were in your seat, write down these five things. And seriously, take some time this week and see how you can overlay it over the things in your life that are pulling you away from God. And I'll try to go through them pretty quick, but as we look up, uh, we look at Joseph's story and we overlay it over the rest of the Bible, I find these five things at work, okay? First, we need to not put ourselves in situations where we know we're gonna be tempted. Now, that might seem like a no-brainer, and I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but in your heart, raise your hand. <laughs> if you have been dumb enough to be like, I struggle with alcoholism, but then I buy a case of beer, Like, okay, like you knew that that was gonna be a struggle for you, but we did it anyway. I struggle with online pornography, but yet I stay up late at night and I'm on the websites. Well, guess what? You knew that was gonna be a hard spot for you, so you should skip that. So number one, don't put yourself in situations where you know you're gonna be tempted. Let's look at some scripture that talks about it in 1 Peter 5, 8. This is, anybody scared of snakes? Anybody scared of spiders? Anybody scared of dark closets? Uh, 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 you know, think, like ominous places. Okay, it's crazy because we have these moments in our life. Uh, my kids, they won't go into our shed at night unless I go with them. 
because there's bugs in there. I'm like, well, they were in there during the daytime too. But it's scary. But here's the thing. Our spiritual life is the same way. Listen to what 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's out there hiding. And we avoid all the scary places in our life, but then sometimes we walk right into the den of sin and we don't even bat an eyelash at it until it's too late. So let's avoid those places. But you know what? We may still get into that boat. What's another part of our game plan? Here's the second thought. Don't downplay the gateway moments. Let me explain that. Okay, it's, I'm, uh, you know, if you went through drug abuse resistance education, DARE in public school, uh, you learned that they talk, talk about like gateway drugs. Like there's some things that you, you start on, on a drug that maybe not as harmful to you or not as addictive or whatever. You start there, but it leads to bigger things, right? That's a gateway. A gateway is an entry point into something larger. That's a gateway. And here's something that we tend to do. Uh, my counselor that I spent time with, he talked about when it comes to our temptations, we will often treat the different things we struggle with like a smoker who's trying to not smoke anymore. And so you're familiar with the concept of taking a hit of a cigarette, okay? So I'm a smoker. I'm not trying to smoke anymore. I'm not buying any cigarettes, but my buddy, he's smoking a cigarette. So I'm not going to smoke a cigarette. I'm just going to take a little puff of his cigarette, right? I'm not a smoker. He's a smoker. I'm just going to borrow a little bit of his. So we take a little hit. And here's the things that we do. Those, those are gateway moments. Those are small things. And I find that for me specifically, and this is probably true for you, that in the areas of my life where I struggle with sin, like I might stay out of the big fields of sin, but I come right up to the gateway and I like to take a little peek in. Uh, and maybe for you, if, it, if it's lying, it's the little white lies. If it's lust and immorality, maybe it's just the, a magazine cover or an ad on Facebook or a billboard or it's, it's, it's the, the quick looks at your coworker who is handsome, handsome and well-built, you know? You know, it's like you're not diving in all the way, but listen, don't downplay those ga- gateway moments. They open up a doorway into so much more. That's a strategy. Ephesians 4.27 says this, do not give the devil a foothold. Think of a climber climbing the face of a, a rock. And, if, and, and they can grab, grasp purchase on just a little you know, indentation or just a little outcropping of rock. And if they're strong enough, they can pull themselves up. And what the enemy wants to do is find those little moments in our life where he can just stick a foot in, stick a hand in, and pull his way into our life. It's gateway moments. Let's not downplay those. Don't take a hit of sin. Because it'll draw you in so much deeper. Number three, this has been one of the biggest ones in my life. Have accountability. Have accountability. We all need people in our lives to whom we can talk about our sin and temptation. If we walk around going like, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm an island, like I can manage myself, that is a lie that you're believing right now. You need people in your life that you can talk to and who can, you give them permission to speak into your life. Hey, can you, can you ask me a couple hard questions every now and then? Can we grab coffee once a month just so we can talk through this again? I have found often the people that I'm most accountable to are the people who struggle with some of the same things I struggle with. And it, it goes both ways. It's great. There's a great principle about accountability that I think has been the most helpful in my life, and it's this. It's Confession. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's something about saying it out loud. It gets it out of the, 
you know, we sweep stuff under the rug or we hide it in the closet or whatever analogy you want, we want to use. But if you can pull that out into the light, actually in the, in the book of John it talks about when we, when we can drag our sin out into the light, that it is seen before God, it is seen before other people. And it's just the simple act of saying out loud, like this is something I'm struggling with, to a friend, a trusted friend, it really, really, really helps to clear the air and help you get a fresh start. Have accountability. Number four. Okay, the fourth part of our game plan is this. When you are tempted, run. Like, I love about Joseph's story that he wasn't like, okay, no, let's talk this through. Okay, listen, you remember how I said, remember Potiphar, I talked about him, he's your husband, and remember I'm trying not to, yeah, and then God, I got this thing with God, so listen. And there's some point at which we just gotta be like, peace. <laughs> and we're gone. And sometimes this means radical decisions in our life. It, it, it might be small things, it might be as simple as changing the way that you drive home so that you can avoid going by certain places. It might be as simple as spending less time at certain places. It might be radical as canceling your internet or getting rid of your smartphone or ending conversations. But I'm gonna tell you something. It might sound crazy, but whatever garment you leave behind, it's gonna be worth it. It's gonna be worth it. In 2 Timothy 2.22, the advice that Paul gives to the young man, he was mentoring Timothy. He says, run from anything that stimulates your youthful lusts. And, you know, again, we're talking about a certain type of sin this morning, but a lust is anything that I'm going to desire and chase ever other than God. He says, run from that. Flee from it. Think about other people. Think about your family. Think about your coworkers. Think about your children. Think about the people that respect you and look up to you and depend on you. Run. And so that's a pretty good list. But then we get to the fifth one. And to me, this is the most important thing in our game plan. Let me just read it to you and then we'll discuss it. We need to know that if we have failed, we are never too far gone for God to make it right. In my experience in church and Christianity, there's, there's two conversations and they, they, they sometimes don't overlap and they should. One is that God is full of grace and love and forgiveness. Yay. And the other one is sin is bad and you're wretched and everyone's, you know, going to hell. Yay. <laughs> and then sometimes we forget to remind ourselves that actually the grace portion covers over all of that. Maybe you didn't run. I have not always run. I've had to have some conversations with my wife that are shameful. And they were hard. Why? Because I didn't run from some things. Maybe you didn't run, but guess what? It's not too late to turn around. The Bible tells us that if we want to honor God with our life, this is one of the, the most common words in the entire Bible throughout all the stories. The word is repent. Repent. And repentance is a very simple concept. I'm going to nail it down for you in like one sentence. It means turning back to God. Whatever direction you were facing, turning back to God. And you know what that actually is? It's the same thing as running from sin. Because whatever, the, where are you running to? Well, I'm running to God. And guess what? God is standing there with his arms open wide. That's what Christianity is about. The act of Jesus on the cross, the fact that God became a man, put himself among us, gave up his life as to pay the punishment that we deserve for our sin when we give in to our temptation. He says, listen, I will take that wrath on myself if you do one simple thing. Turn to me. Turn to me. Run to me. Maybe you failed on part one of the plan. Maybe you failed on part two of the plan, part three of the plan, part four of the plan. Guess what? 
turn. And guess what you can do tomorrow? Start over at part one. (laughs) I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I might be tempted. I'm not going to downplay those entry-level things. I'm not going to do those other things. I'm going to try to put accountability in my life. I'm going to run next time. Repentance is not something that we only do one time in our life. It's something we get to do every day. Every minute, if we want to renew our heart with God, it's beautiful. And every time we do it, I'm going to advise you, I'm going to ask you, try this this week. Try several times today and tomorrow in the middle of what you're doing. Be like, oh, you know what, God? I wasn't thinking about you recently. You know what? I I want to start pointing my life at you. And do it just right then. In your mind, in your heart, sometimes with our actions, I should put this down. (laughs) That's, That's a cloak I need to leave behind and turn to God. The Bible says that God can and he will forgive us and restore us if we ask for forgiveness and we repent. And there's so much more that we can get into that. You might just be hearing this for the first time this morning. Let me invite you to do something. Hang out with us next week. Like, let's make some community together. Let's hang out. Let's work through this together. God is patient. He's gracious. He loves us. And there's so much beauty in the things that you can learn from his word. Maybe you've already heard this before and it's just a good reminder. I need to turn. I want to close, close with a scripture uh, that just kind of just gives us a reminder. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. The apostle Paul says, Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Let's be God chasers together. Pick everything up right where you are right now and let's just start that journey with him. Let me pray with you.